tonight. And we do have a special message on a very special topic, and it is on the topic of forgiveness, okay? And I heard you ladies in women's Bible study might have even had a little bit of a primer getting ready for the topic tonight, and you might feel kind of underwhelmed, right? The special topic is forgiveness? I mean, it's kind of like I hold a a, a realtor's conference, and I bring everyone in here, and I say, hey, guys, uh, main thing, make sure you sell houses, right? I mean, it's kind of obvious. It's implicit in what you are as a Christian, being a forgiven person, that you should be a forgiving person. Why is it so hard for us to forgive? And why is it so hard in a marriage for us to forgive our spouses? Well, if I could just put in a special play, there are a number of fantastic things about my wife, okay? My wife is a very kind lady. She's a great dresser. Uh, She's funny, incredible taste in men. I mean, there's a lot of great things about my wife. Uh, But the thing that I can remember first noticing about her that drew me to want to marry her was the fact that she was quick to forgive people and quick to ask for forgiveness. And I would consider my relationship to my wife a blessing from God, not because it's perfect, but because my wife is really good at granting forgiveness quickly and really good at asking for it quickly. And so if you want to have a a healthy, thriving marriage, it will be only on the grounds that you are willing to grant forgiveness quickly and willing to exercise it and ask for it quickly. In fact, of all people on the face of this earth, should we be not the most equipped and quickest to exercise forgiveness? If we say that there is a holy God who has forgiven us every single sin we have ever committed against him, why is there any doubt in our mind that we should be able to forgive one another? And yet it's hard. And that's why we want to talk about it tonight. Why is forgiveness so hard? Let's just ask the question first. I bet, I want you to answer that question in your mind right now. Please don't shout it out loud. Why is forgiveness so hard? I've been asking that question to a number of people this week. I asked it to myself. And I'll be honest, the knee-jerk reaction that I had and the knee-jerk reaction I got from most people, forgiveness is so hard because people do such horrible things. And it's true. I mean, that, that is in essence true that forgiveness is hard because people do horrible things to us and are very painful and that makes it hard. But why is that our knee-jerk reaction? Why don't I knee-jerk forgiveness is hard because I'm a pretty prideful person? And I don't want to forgive someone because I like the role of judge and I like to hold someone accountable when they've hurt me. Why don't I ask that question first? And it's when you begin to ask that question that you make yourself prepared to become a better forgiver because you're not so concerned with what the other person is doing, although we will talk about what they need to do, but you're really concerned with what your role is in forgiveness. It's when you pursue humility and you realize what you've been forgiven by God. And this is, in essence, what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 18, 21 to 35, when he says there is a slave who's been forgiven a huge debt from God, from the king, and then he goes out and cannot forget another slave because there's pride in him. If you can get to the humility to say, if I've been forgiven so much, forgiveness I should grant right away, it's going to help you become a better forgiver. So let's work on that tonight. Let's not think about what my spouse needs to do better at first, although that's a legitimate thing to talk about. Let's think about what I can do better first and focus on the humility 
of that. So what we're going to do tonight, number one is this. Let's clear up misconceptions about forgiveness. Forgiveness is such a powerful tool to unite a marriage. I mean, if forgiveness can really unite a holy God to sinful people, what more unifying tool do you need in a marriage than forgiveness? But we got to clear up some misconceptions of it. And I don't think it's overstating the fact that I say these misconceptions that are put out by our culture, and they are put out by our culture out there, are really demonically driven. Because why would the devil want us to be more unified and more forgiving of one another if that's what's going to glorify Christ even more when we forgive like he's forgiven us? So I really think at ultimate essence, these are demonic ploys that we need to watch for. So let me give you this one. There's three of them. First, the first misconception is this. Make sure you realize that forgiveness is not just a feeling of remorse. Understand that forgiveness is not just a feeling of remorse. It's not just about being sad. It's not just about being sorry, although that is part of it. But if I break forgiveness down at its essence, it's between two different parties. It's about a relationship. And you're going to notice these different ploys that what they're trying to do is eliminate one of the parties so that forgiveness loses its power. And if the two parties are this, the offender, the one who's committed the sin, and the offended, the one who's received the action, this first one, forgiveness, is just a, a feeling of remorse. What it does is eliminate the person who's been offended. All it does is really put the focus on the person who's committed the offense. And if, it, if forgiveness is between two different people, if I've hurt you and I come to you and all I declare to you is that I'm sorry, all I've done is just made a declaration of my feelings. What does that do? I mean, in a kind of a funny analogy, anybody have their parents tell them this? I, my mom told me this almost every single day. Come home from kitchen, come home from school, go to the kitchen. Mom, I'm hungry. And I would make a declaration. And she would say, what do you want me to do about it? Right? You're hungry? That's just information. All you're doing is declaring something to me. You can be nice and courteous and say, Mom, could you cook me something? Can I, can I help you with something? But just coming and making a declaration of, I'm hungry, gets nothing done. Well, it's the same with forgiveness. If I just come and I say, oh, I'm, I'm really sorry, okay? It's part of it, but it doesn't get it all there, okay? A biblical example, just to prove that to you, is Matthew 27, verse 5. Just write it down. We don't have time to go there. We're going to go a lot of places tonight. Matthew 27, 5 is Judas, who feels really bad about betraying Christ, selling him to the Pharisees, and getting him hung on a cross. It says he felt remorse. But what did he do? Went out and hung himself afterwards because he couldn't deal with the guilt, he has Jesus there who his whole ministry has been, I will forgive anyone who comes to me and he chooses to eliminate the offended party, Christ, and just kills himself. It gets nothing done. It's not just a feeling of remorse. Don't fall into the trap of pride of thinking it's all about you and your feelings. Include the offended party and make sure you realize it's not just about remorse. Number two, though, it's not just about a gracious attitude, okay? It's not just about a gracious attitude or a willingness to forgive. And so if the first one, the first misconception, eliminates the offended party, the second one eliminates the offender. It's the mindset of, okay, somebody's done something wrong to me, and I'm just going to, it's okay, I forgive them, okay? You see this often in huge, you know, sort of media things when, like, uh, I grew up in, uh, my dad's got a church in Pontiac, Michigan, which is in a rougher part of town. Um, and the neighbors are not 
How do you say this kindly? The neighbors are hooligans. I don't know how else you say it. They came and borrowed our basketball hoops and never brought them back. Um, broken windows, things like that. And we would see often, not our church, but other churches would say, uh, somebody broke in and stole our sound system and we would sell the equipment. You would see that often on the news. And what would happen is the interviewer would say to the pastor, hey, do you, f- do you forgive these people? Are you angry with them? And he says, no, I've forgiven them already. Well, it's nice to want to have a gracious spirit, but how can you forgive someone, first of all, who isn't there, And secondly, hasn't come to you and said, I feel guilty and sorry about what I've done. Will you grant me forgiveness? You you can't do it. I want to tell you that the desire and the willingness to forgive should be unconditional in every single Christian because it's commanded of you. But the fact to carry it out has to be conditioned upon the person coming to you. And we see that over and over again in the Bible. Where this plays out in a marriage will be this. Plays out in a marriage like this. If someone says, hey, I'm sorry, who's ever offended one another, I'm sorry, and the other person says this, oh, it's okay. And that's kind of how conflicts are resolved in a marriage. Oh, I'm sorry, Uh, it's it's okay. If we're talking about a moral offense, and we're talking about a sin committed between people, the declaration of I'm sorry and me saying it's okay is not forgiveness. But that's what we think it is. We can never say that sin is okay. Sin is not okay. Sin is a violation of God's law and we need to deal with it. And the way to deal with it, the way that God deals with it, is by forgiving it, eliminating the debt, and not dealing and not bringing it up anymore. And that's what we need to do. But if I just think it's a gracious spirit saying, oh, I forgive those persons, if they haven't come to me and asked, and we haven't made the, the, the transaction, if you will, then there is no forgiveness. Here's the verse just to write down for that. We'll talk about it more later. Luke 13, 35. This is Jesus, Luke 13, 35 who says this, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city who kills the prophets, how I would have gathered you as a mother gathers a hen, right? Offered forgiveness, brought reconciliation, and he says this, but you would not come. Jesus is willing, right? Arms wide open. Come to me, all who are willing and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But does Jesus save everybody? No. The person who comes and asks for forgiveness is the one who receives it. So we want to make sure we realize it's not just a gracious spirit. Number three, you need to realize that it doesn't eliminate consequences, okay? It's a misconception that we have. Sometimes forgiveness does do that. In some gracious manifestations, when you forgive someone, it wipes the slate clean and consequences are gone. But you know what? It doesn't always do that. A biblical example of this would be David, uh, 2 Samuel 12. And you read that account, okay? 2 Samuel 12, Nathan comes to David, confronts him on his sin that he's not willing to confess. He's not been forgiven by God because he won't bring it up. Then he finally does. He brings it to God. He confesses it. God says, hey, your sin's covered. But guess what? The child's going to die. The consequences of the sin are still there. So just because he asked for forgiveness and it got covered doesn't eliminate the consequences always. And we need to realize that. If I steal from somebody and I end up going to prison... If I ask for their forgiveness relationally, we're okay, but that doesn't mean I'm getting out of prison. The consequences are there and they are real. So forgiveness doesn't always eliminate consequences. So let me tell you what it is. Let me give you a definition right now, give you a chance to write it down. It's this. Forgiveness is a resolve by the offended party to release the repentant offender of moral culpability and not to remember the offense. 
I'll say it a couple more times. Forgiveness. Forgive me for saying it was for saying it so fast. Forgiveness, a resolve by the offended party. Forgiveness is a resolve by the offended party to release the repentant offender of moral culpability and not to remember the offense. Forgiveness is a resolve by the offended party. So the offended party makes a promise, a covenant, a resolve to release a repentant offender of moral culpability and not to remember the offense. What does that look like practically? If I say that, if I say that when someone comes to me, if I'm the offended party and they are a repentant offender saying, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done this. I was wrong. Will you please forgive me? What does it look like for me to release them of moral culpability and not to remember the sin anymore? I think there's four kind of practical aspects that you can kind of make sure you know that that's going on in your life. First of all, you won't bring up the incident in judgment or shame, okay? It means you won't bring up the incident that they did to you, the moral offense that they brought to you in judgment or shame. Here's why I specify it that way. Let's just say, uh, you know, I ask somebody to come uh, babysit my kids and to watch my kids, and uh, they steal the most precious thing to me, my collection of Rocky DVDs. They just, they take it. It's really <laughs> precious to me. Uh, don't laugh. That's really my most precious. Oh, my kids, of course, but then my Rocky DVDs. Let's just say they take those, okay? They come, and they take those, and they, to they come, and they, they say, I'm very sorry. I stole these. I shouldn't have taken them. Um, will you forgive me? I will forgive them because I'm commanded to do it. I see their contrition. But the next time that they come and they say, hey, could I babysit your kids? It is not wrong for me to say, I will have a hard time trusting you because of your actions that you did to me. That's not bringing up judgment. I'm not condemning them. I'm not bringing it up and passing it to other people. But because of the consequences of their actions, I have lack of trust. So it's okay to talk about it in that sense, but where it's not okay to talk about is when you're in a fight and the person does something to you and you bring this out and say, well, you did this to me. That's judgment. You can't do that. Or you can't do it to shame them, to make them feel bad. That's what it means to release them of that. You're not the judge and you're not going to shame them for it. Second, you won't gossip to others about it. That's what it means. Oh, you won't believe what I had to forgive my husband of this week. You know? That's, that's, that's not forgetting it. You're, you're choosing to remember it. You're bringing it up. Um, don't gossip to it about others. Three, you promise not to dwell on it in your own mind. Promise not to think about it, which is really tough. I mean, especially when you're in the same house, same room as the person, right? It's hard to do that. That's hard work, and we're going to talk about that in a moment. But you're not going to dwell on it. That's what you're promising when you're, when you're saying, I'm forgiving you. And three, you're going to try to treat them as if they'd never done that to you. You're going to try why it's okay to talk about it. If they've broken trust, hey, I, I'm not bringing this up because I'm judging you. I'm just telling you how I feel about the situation. I'm having a hard time with this is different than you did this and you will do it again. That's a judgment, okay? There's, there's difference there. And uh, we can ask questions about that in the small group if you have it. But now that we know what it's not and we know what it is, let's too, let's learn the mechanics of forgiveness. Let's learn the mechanics of forgiveness. Now get this point. Forgiveness has mechanics, but it is not mechanical, okay? There are mechanics about forgiveness, but it's not mechanical. There's a difference. Maybe you could think about it this way. It's, it's 
baseball season for me. I know a lot of people are in March Madness right now, and I love March Madness, but we're in spring training mode for me. There are mechanics to hitting, right? There are mechanics. There's good mechanics you should have. But when you watch, like, say, Ken Griffey Jr., the purest hitter of all time, nobody can argue against that. He's the greatest hitter of all time. Um, just that's what it is. If you watch him swing, there is nothing mechanical about Ken Griffey Jr.'s swing. It's beautiful, pure. But there are a lot of mechanics that go into that natural swing. Well, it's the same with forgiveness. There are a lot of mechanics about it, but it should flow from us naturally. Or maybe, maybe we have cooks in the room, right? There are mechanics of cooking, but cooking's not, if you're a good cook, you're not mechanical. <laughs> like if you want to see something really funny, uh, tell my wife to show a text exchange that we had. Uh, she was at uh, Carlin's house doing a women's Bible study thing, and I was trying to make pasta for the kids. And if you want to see something hilarious, I don't know how to cook. And I'm texting like literally everything like, how long does the sauce go on the burner for this? And she's going back and forth. It's extremely funny because I don't know the mechanics of cooking, so it has to be mechanical for me. And you know what? The meal's not that good when it happens. But a good cook, right, gets the mechanics of the kitchen, but it's really natural and the product is always great. So there's a difference between mechanics of something and being mechanical. I'm not asking you to learn these mechanics and do them with a checkbox or do them rote, or do them perfunctory. What I'm asking you to do is learn the mechanics so that as you practice them, they become very natural. And it's just flowing out of you like it should as you imitate Christ in this, okay? So maybe write down these three words. When you go and you've, you've offended your wife, let's say, you've offended your wife or your spouse, think of these three words, responsibility, specificity, and humility, okay? Made them really hard to say. <laughs> Responsibility, specificity, and humility. So I've committed a transgression against my wife. The mechanics are this. I'm going to go to her, and I'm going to claim responsibility, ownership. I did this against you. Not adding any context to what they did to elicit whatever it was in me. If I'm asking for genuine forgiveness, I'm going with the mindset of I'm taking responsibility. I'm taking ownership. I did this, and I want you to know that I'm not blaming anybody but myself. Responsibility, okay? Specificity. I really want to get specific, okay? As specific as I can get. Hey, I, I spoke harshly to you, and the Bible tells me not to do that. Or I told you that I would do this, and I did not do it. I, I want to be specific on what it is. And then number three, I want the humility to say, will you please forgive me? Now, that is why I think the Bible is promoting what I call conditional forgiveness, but it, probably a better term is transactional forgiveness. Because when we think of conditional, we always think of unconditional love, and we don't want to get confused here. So let's think of a transaction, okay? If I rob the person who's committed the sin, them coming to me and telling me the offense, I rob the sanctifying effect that forgiveness should have. I hope you have felt the sting in your gut when you have to admit to doing something wrong. But that is a bit part of the biblical process of mortifying sin in your life. And if I never get to that point because somebody's already said, oh, it's okay, then I've never gotten to the point where I really hate my sin. I realize the depths of my sin when I pour it out before someone and say, I know this hurts you. I know this is terrible. I know I don't want to do it anymore. I never feel that at its height or its climax until... I've spoken it to that other person. 
Why do you think God doesn't just forgive everyone in general? Because he wants us to come to him and acknowledge the heinousness of our sin, to confess our sin, and to speak the same as our sin the same way he views it. It's not okay. I shouldn't have done that. God, I'm wrong. And because he's merciful and gracious and compassionate, he will always forgive the repentant sinner who comes to him. So we need to learn these ideas of responsibility, specificity, and humility, okay? Let's turn to some passages, okay? This is what will happen in a husband-wife relationship. Two passages. Uh, first, write down Luke 17. Luke 17. Learning the mechanics, okay? Listen to how Jesus says it here. Verses uh, 3 and 4. Uh, I'm in John. That's why that doesn't make sense. Luke 17. <laughs> yeah, here we go. This makes a lot of sense. There we go. Wow, notice, it, notice how he starts this. Pay attention to the other person. No, pay attention to yourself, okay? Look at yourself and be ready for forgiveness. If your brother sins against you, okay, your brother sins against you, you can go to that person if they haven't come to you. If somebody has cut you off in the hallway and they were very rude to you, it is okay for you to go to them and say, hey, I believe you were very rude to me and you cut me off and you acted like, like you were more important than I was. It's okay to go to them in a humble spirit, realizing that you're not perfect at all and saying, hey, you did that to me and it, it upset me, it hurt me. If he repents, notice the condition there, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times a day saying, repent, you must forgive him. Now, these numbers here in the Bible are not giving for the literal tallying of seven times. Jesus is trying to make the point of, hey, throw the tallying out of it, okay? If, he, if you get sinned against a lot, if there's genuine repentance, you must forgive, and that's what he's saying. So always pay attention to yourself. If somebody does something to you and they don't come, then you go to them and, and make the offense known. Hey, you promised that you would, you would be home at this time, and I made dinner and you went out and, you know, played pool with the guys after work, okay? You, you lied to me. That's, that's a lie. I, I don't like it when you do that. It's okay to bring that offense in a humble manner to them. My hope is this would happen, okay? Matthew uh, 22. Write down Matthew 22. My hope is that you would feel conviction. And Matthew 22 states it this way. If you're offering your, uh, your gift before the altar, Matthew 22... Uh, five, uh, sorry, Matthew 5, 23. If you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar and go first be reconciled to your brother. So you're going, you think, oh yeah, you know what? I, did, I promised my wife I should have been home at 5, 15, guys. I got to leave. I got to go take care of this with my wife. I'm going to go be reconciled to her. Notice it doesn't say just forgive him and continue the event. We got to go and reconcile. So, when there's been a sin, a moral offense between two people, then one person, hopefully the person who's done the offense, will go and say, hey, I did this, will you please forgive me? But it's not wrong for the other person to come and say, hey, you did this. Once that's taken place, now the imitation of what God has done for us can begin to be put into action. So what are the two things that you're promising not to do? You complete the transaction of forgiveness. So when you say, I forgive you, what you're doing according to the Bible's definition of forgiveness, is you're wiping away the debt. Okay, you're, there's a debt that the person owes to you, you're pushing it aside, and it's no longer as if there is any debt between the two of you. 
Anybody else paying student loans back there? I'm paying some student loans to the government. And I got some debt that I'm paying to them. Okay? That is a breach in our relationship. And something's got to be done to take care of it. Imagine how hard it would be for the government to say to me, oh, that's fine, and wipe it away. I'm not even going to treat you like you've ever done that. That should elicit joy in me and an emotion in me. That's really tough for the person who's owed the stuff. So realize, person who's the offender, that when you go to the offendee and say, hey, would you wipe this away? It's a big deal. Do you realize what you're doing to ask somebody to wipe away a debt that you've committed to them? See, C.S. Lewis, Lewis said it this way, it's beautiful to talk about forgiveness until you have to forgive something, right? Oh, yeah, it's so great when you can wipe away offenses until somebody owes you something. Then we want justice real quick. We want them to pay us back. But if we treated our relationship with God that way, it wouldn't go so well. So we're going to complete the transaction. We're going to wipe away the sin. That's what we're doing. But notice what the Bible has said in Luke 17, if they repent. So if my wife comes to me and says, I lied to you yesterday, sweetie. Will you forgive me? I'm very sorry. Yes, I will forgive you. Let's talk about how to work on this and be truthful to one another. The next day she lies again. And the next day she lies again. And it's a pattern, pattern, pattern. At a certain point in time, I'm going to look at her and I'm going to say, you don't want my forgiveness you are trying to appease a guilty conscience, a worldly sorrow that is not helping you right now. So we need to go get somebody else involved in this situation. And that's why Matthew 18 talks about, oh, this is how you get involved in the church. If somebody sins against you and you go to them and they don't change, well, bring two or three people in and then try to see if that can help. And if that doesn't change them, then bring the church in at that point in time. This is how we begin to deal with sins. But it's only when genuine repentance has taken place that I can really forgive somebody because that's when they want my forgiveness. So if genuine repentance has taken place, guess what? That doesn't eliminate the offended party from ease because it's hard with painful memories. So what you are promising and covenanting to do in forgiveness is not to remember the sin anymore. See, there's an there's a idea out there, forgive and forget, Right? I don't think that that's biblical. Forgiveness is, uh, forgetfulness is accidental, let's say. Not remembering is intentional. And that's a, a point you're going to want to remember. I accidentally forget things all the time. My keys, this, that, whatever it is. I don't try to do that. That's an accident. I have to intentionally uh, act not to remember something. Like if I had a, like let's just say, uh, you know, for, I preached a bad sermon at some point. I'm like, that would ever happen. But let's just say I did, okay? <laughs> I preached a bad sermon. I would feel trepidation going back to that congregation. I would remember my time there and like, oh, they don't want me back. They don't want this. I would have to do a lot of activity in my mind to say, don't think that thought. Push that away. You've got to go and do this. It's active that you are going to stop thinking about the sin that's been committed to you. Because remember, that's how God in Christ has forgiven us. Uh, Psalm 25, 6 through 8 says the same thing. God, don't remember my sin anymore. Psalm 25, 6 through 8. It's a great portion of scripture. I did a sermon on that during the summer. The summer? No, it was winter. What am I talking about? I've got a new baby. Get off my back, okay? It's, I don't even know what time of the year it is, okay? It's winter time. It wasn't summer, but it's Psalm 25. Uh, don't remember my sin anymore, God. Don't remember it. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. I will remember your sin no more. It's not as if God is forgetting it, like he couldn't call it to mind if he wanted to, he's choosing not to do it. He's making a point not to do it. And that's what you're covenanting to do with your spouse 
even though you see them every day and you're reminded of the hurt, you're getting to do what God does with you every single day, pushing aside the sin, the affront to you, the affront to him, and saying, you're my child, you're welcomed into my family. So you're working hard not to remember their sin. So what do you do if you've gone to the person and they don't want to repent and they don't want your forgiveness? What can you do? Are, are you just stuck? If it's transactional, is there anything you can do? And this is point number three. Be ready to forgive. There's a readiness to forgiveness, okay? There's a readiness that you need to have that allows you to be able to forgive someone. See, it would be a wrong mindset for you to think, oh, I'll just, I won't think about forgiveness until I have to forgive somebody. No, you should be thinking about forgiveness all the time so that it's constant. You're ready, you're alert. Because if you just wait, it's not gonna go well for you. So be ready to forgive. And this is a very biblical concept. Turn with me to uh, Nehemiah. The book of Nehemiah helps me understand this. This is a plug just to do the DBR with us. I don't know if you would ever read the book of Nehemiah. If I had my choice, I might not ever read it. There's long sections of it that are uninteresting and they're about names. But because we were doing the DBR, I, I remember, because I listened to it, getting struck with this verse. Um, Nehemiah, what did I say, chapter 9? Nehemiah, chapter 9, verses 16, and, uh, 20, 16 through 21. Nehemiah chapter 9, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. There we go. 16 through 21. Now just listen to this statement. Verse 16. But they, talking about Israel from the past, and our fathers, notice how this, they acted presumptuously. They stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. This is what's happening to God. They refused to obey and they were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return them to their slavery in Egypt. This is a, an offense against God. Hu, human people, the Israelites, who God ripped them out of Egypt, parted the Red Sea for them, provided for them manna every single day. These people said, God, I want nothing to do with you. As a matter of fact, you can't do what you've promised to do. I don't want you to be our leader. We're going to appoint a new leader and we're going back to Egypt. And this is God, the maker of the universe. And what is the next phrase in the Bible? But you are a God ready to forgive. And if that doesn't blow your mind, you don't understand biblical forgiveness. You guys realize dignity, right? Nobility. Kings have it, okay? If you go overseas and you're in the monarchy and you strike someone who is in the royal family, you will get a huge punishment because of their nobility, their dignity. If you strike someone on the street, it's going to be some pain for you, but it's not going to be as much as the person who has the most nobility, the most majesty, the most importance. The higher the nobility, the greater the offense. There is no greater nobility than God. And the fact that God would be ready to forgive these people who are acting this way is incredible. If you don't think about that every single day as a Christian, you're not going to be ready to forgive an offense. You will take yourself and place yourself on the judgment throne and say, I will merit out forgiveness when I want to. You have no right 
if God is ready to forgive when this egregious unbelief is coming towards him, you should be the same. Continue to read the rest. Look at this. Your God ready to forgive, gracious, merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and you did not forsake them. Even when they made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt. And he had committed great blasphemies. You and your great mercies did not forsake them. The pillar of the cloud led them all the way not to depart by day, and the pillar of fire did not leave them by way of night. And you gave them your good spirit to instruct them, and you did not withhold from them manna, and you gave them water for their thirst. For 40 years you sustained them in the wilderness, and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell. So not only is God ready to forgive, but he is actively doing good to the people who are offending him. That is your job until the person comes to you and asks for forgiveness. Or if you go to them and they refuse, you are still to do this. You're to go to them and do good. You're to be kind to them. How did Jesus say it? Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. This, by the way, is the generation that God says he loathed them, okay? He hated them. I hate this generation because of their unbelief, Psalm 95. Because of all they were doing, I loathe this generation. And you might loathe the actions being done to you, but it gives you no right to withhold graciousness and compassion and mercy and love because God didn't withhold that from you or the Israelites. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Now that we have this in our mind, let's turn to Ephesians 4. Ephesians chapter 4, look at verse 32. Ephesians 4, 32. Ephesians 4, 32 says this, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Verse, five of, verse 1 of chapter 5, Therefore be an imitator of God as beloved children. The highest form of imitation of God in this section is the forgiveness of other people. What we just read in the Old Testament, being ready to forgive, preparing yourself to forgive, is an imitation of God. That's what it means to be created in the image of God. Do you realize animals can't do this? They don't offer forgiveness to one another. We have, being created in God's image, a great ability to mirror him to the world when someone's offended us and we say, I'm wiping that away and I'm going I'm to do my best not to forgive that ever, never do that again and never bring it up again. We can imitate God in forgiveness. How do, you how do you practically make sure you're ready to forgive? One, reflect on the nature and forgiveness that God has given you. So when you're reflecting constantly on God's nature, if you know who he is, the more you know who God is, the more you realize how noble his character is and how much he's willing to still forgive offenses is incredible. So the more you know about him, reflect on his nature and reflect on the forgiveness he's given you. Right? Uh, Psalm 130, verse 3. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. We have too many husbands and too many wives with their little notepad, one offense, two offense, three offense, four, 
You just pile up the offenses over and over again, and you have no right to do that. Why do you think you're so noble? Why do you think you're so good? Why do you have this misconception of yourself that you've been so pure and perfect? Only God can claim that, and he still is ready to forgive. Reflect on the nature and forgiveness of God. And then number two, be kind to the offender, okay? Be kind to him. Do whatever you can. Do whatever you can to show kindness. Remember that phrase in Romans 2.4? The kindness of our God leads us to repentance. It's God showing kindness to people that really leads him to repentance. This is what I think you could say is heaping burning coals on the head of the person in Romans 12 where it says you leave room for the wrath of God. You don't bring judgment. As far as it depends on you, be kind to all people. And you know what that does? It heaps burning coals on them. Hopefully, coals that will draw them to repentance. And we want to make sure that happens, okay? So what we're going to do in a moment is the gals are going to stay in this room, okay? You're going to get within your small group. All the gals of the small group will be in here. And the guys, we're going to go over to the auditorium. And you're going to be in your small groups over there. And the guys will be together over there. The leaders, small group leaders have some questions and we're going to go through them and practically work this, this out. Um, but two things if I could leave you with, if you think about this. Just two pieces of practical advice. If you always look at forgiveness as an event with continual exercises or a promise with continual patterns, you're going to do forgiveness pretty well. Never think that once you say, okay, I've forgiven you, that your job's done. That's an event that needs to take place. That's a promise that needs to be made. But there's still exercises that you need to do to make sure that that happens. There's still practices that you need to put into place to make sure that that forgiveness lasts. So always look at it as an event with continuing exercises or a promise with continuing practice. That will help you as you deal with forgiveness, fighting off bitterness, uh, working on making sure that you don't do the same offense that you've done over and over again. Think about it that way. And number two, make sure you get upset about the right things. In your marriage, make sure you get upset about the right things. You see, there's a difference between idiosyncrasies that somebody might have and sin that they commit against you, okay? Psalm 119, 136 says, my eyes shed streams of tears because people break your law. That's what I want to break your heart. God's law is broken. Somebody's not loving you. Someone's being uh, abusing you. Someone's doing this. Those are things that should break our heart just like they break God's heart. Um, but let's not get upset over things that are inconsequential. Let's apply grace there. Let's be merciful. Let's be loving towards one another. Let's enjoy the idiosyncrasies of the other person. And uh, maybe marriage will be a little bit better for you instead of always being around there with a gavel ready to judge every idiosyncrasy that's there. When you put those two things into practice with all the theoretics that we've had going on, <clears throat> I think we'll have an opportunity to have some thriving marriages because forgiveness is there. There's a, you want to, might, might want to write down Micah 7, verses 18 to 20. And it asks this question, Micah 7, verses 18 to 20. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity, passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever, but he delights in steadfast love. Who's a God like that? There's no other God like that. Uh, Michael, the name Michael. It's my first name if you didn't know that. Some people find out Elliot's not my first name. Michael in Hebrew, Mikael. 
who is like God. That's the first word in this, in the Hebrew text. Who is like God? There's no one like him. What distinguishes him from other gods? He forgives people's sins when they come to him and ask. Can we apply the same graciousness to one another? And I think we'll give him lots of glory when we do that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your forgiveness. God, would you please forgive us when we withhold it? How dare we do that? May we always look to you and say, if God will forgive me my great offenses, may I be able to overlook those of other people. God, may you make our marriages places that grow and mature and become great, you know, safe havens for love to be because we're forgiving of one another. And God, may you get all the glory because of it because you've taught us how to forgive and you've shown us how to forgive and you've given us the grace to be able to do so. So may you help us and we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. All right, guys. Well, thank you. Two people in the front row. All right, gentlemen. All, we've got small group tables over there in the auditorium.